0: Flanagan is at his home now in Dublin 15. Terry and you want to tell us about some of the reasons from a natural history point of view that it's good to live in Dublin? Well there are lots of advantages Derek for living in Dublin and one of them for me is visiting the museums here in the city. Museums like the National Museum of Ireland or the Chester Beatty Museum or the National Print Museum. These are all free to the public and great places to visit. But my favourite, it's got to be the Natural History Museum. Now, the Natural History Museum is on Merrion Street, a wonderful Victorian building, a really compact place, overflowing with specimens. Pretty much every Irish bird or animal is there. Not only those living today, but also some extinct ones. In fact, just as you step inside the front door, you're met with some wonderful specimens of giant Irish deer. I paid a visit recently and met with Paolo Viscardi, keeper of the museum, and he showed me about the lives of these magnificent animals when they roamed the land here thousands of years ago. Come in the front door, Terry. Wow, the first thing I can see are these two magnificent, not animals as such, but skeletons.
1: Well, there's actually three here. You've got the the two males and the female. Um, And the female is actually, in many ways, the more interesting one of them because they're so... Few female giant Irish deer.
0: Yeah. Um, now that's what they are. They're giant Irish deer.
1: They are giant Irish deer.
0: Most of the specimens that you have here are animals that, that are stuffed. And fish and insects. But you do have these small number of skeletons. And these ones, they're really impressive. They are.
1: These are pretty remarkable actually. They're, they're fairly complete and they're very very, very complete actually because finding a complete giant irish deer is quite unusual you will often find bits Mm. a few pieces here maybe a skull maybe a few bits of a leg or something like that you very very rarely find the whole thing but um, certainly some of these specimens here were actually found as you see them today sometimes with some damage which has been repaired and sometimes with bits missing which have been replaced, but generally they were actually very, very intact.
0: Looking at it, the first thing people will
1: notice is that it's totally black. Has it been painted? It's not actually been painted, but they would have prepared the bones and they would have coated them, probably um, heated them in in a... a vat of some sort of substance, Mm -hmm. all sorts of horrible things in it, but as a way of, uh, what we'd say, consolidating the bone. So it's about impregnating that bone with a kind of a waxy material which stops it from becoming flaky and fragile because over time, as a bone degrades and becomes you know, a fossil as opposed to a piece of fresh bone, the protein that's in the bone breaks down, and it means that a lot of that flexibility that protein offers is lost. And so the mineral that's left behind uh, needs some kind of matrix to hold it together a bit more effectively, and really that's what they were trying to do with these treatments on the bones. And effectively it means that they've got this black... Coating on them, but it actually that goes right into the bone.
0: Mm-hmm. For anyone coming to the Natural History Museum for the first time, it's a really impressive sight. As soon as you walk in the door, they're huge. You know, people might think of the deer in the park, the fallow deer in the park. To put it in perspective, these ones here—they must be four or six times the size. Am I right?
1: Probably not quite that much. I think it's easy to forget that. Number one, they are standing on a plinth, um, which gives them a lot of extra height. And number two, they were mounted in a way which puts them very much on tippy-toes. So although they were absolutely huge animals, and they certainly would have been maybe three or four times the size of a fallow deer, they're not quite as huge as they look here.
0: Yeah, but they don't have any muscle, they don't have any flesh, they don't have any intestines or so on, and the four. So that would have made them even bigger.
1: Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. And I think the main thing is that when you mount a skeleton and you mount it kind of, To make it look as big as possible, your mind has to fill in all the blanks. It has to fill in all the gaps with all the extra bits that will be on there, and so you scale up accordingly. When you actually mount something with the muscles on and so on, so if you kind of reconstruct it in a more lifelike position, then you'll tend to find that it shrinks down quite a lot because as you add things like muscles and tendons, the way in which the limbs kind of correspond, the, the way in which the bones sit, all changes. So. This style of mounting is very, very old. It's very historic. This is something which would be very, very common as a way of making these um, like already impressive, incredible animals look even bigger.
0: But that was what happened in the day of the Natural History Museum, because this is an old museum. It's not hands-on. There's no computer generated, any of that kind of stuff here. It's just real animals.
1: Yeah, and that absolute tangible kind of reality of the collection is... Part of what I love about the place is part of what our audience loves about the place. We don't really feel the need to have
0: this space full of computers and so on because... No, you just have these animals and that's what does it for you. Looking at them again here, the most striking thing that I see are the antlers. How heavy would they be in real life? I know
1: how heavy they are because I've had to wrangle them. Um, So actually when we reopened the ground floor last year, we had to remount that skull there. Yeah. And because we weren't happy with the way in which it was attached, it was not as well attached as it should have been, in my opinion, so um, we brought someone in to mount it, and so we had to take the skull off, and then we had to build, uh, you might just be able to see, if we come around the back yeah, behind, okay, us, behind the around. specimen here, and look up there you see on the back of the skull there's a kind of a like almost like a pair of handlebars yeah, it, um, yeah. made of made of steel yeah it's um, not so part of the animal you can see it's say. not part of the animal and um, so we installed those uh, to take the weight of those antlers because they weigh around 70
0: 75 kilos so 70 75 kilos in in old money would be 11 or 12 stone yeah yeah and so that, that must have been very very difficult for the animal to haul these around with them all the time like the fallow deer going back to them did they drop these or lose these antlers at certain times during the year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they shed them um, after the rot. They will go through that process, they will do their breeding piece, and then those antlers will fall off because you would not want to be spending a winter having the extra effort yeah. of carrying those
0: things around. Yeah. What did they feed on?
1: Now that's a good question actually, we've had researchers coming in and looking at the material that's caught between the teeth of the giant deer so that's actually a piece of work that happened fairly recently so we're still waiting on the results from that but it seems that they were browsing on um, kind of low vegetation and... and
0: mm. So they're definitely herbivores? Oh they're definitely herbivores, absolutely. A- and the antlers then apart from having them for sexual selection they were also, I presume, there to defend the animal.
1: They may have been used in defence as well, and you tend not to see too much of that um, with modern deer. There's a lot of um, animals which have you know, antlers or horns, and sometimes they will be used defensively, it does happen. But actually, not as often as you might expect. It's one of those, those things that always perplexes me slightly when you see a, a predator attacking a, a herbivore with a large set of antlers or horns and it doesn't turn around and attack. Mm. They tend to run away instead because I think that's just the fight-or-flight response it tends to be geared up towards flight in the case of most um, of the kind of things like deer and antelope and so on. What were their main predators? There probably would have been things like wolves. Because but this is a huge animal <laughs> if we were to stand beside a wolf. Well, you find wolves will take things like moose as well. And when you actually compare the giant deer to something the size of a moose, they're actually fairly comparable. A moose is a huge animal.
0: Now, why are they called Irish deer?
1: Mainly because they're just loads of them found in Ireland. The first ones were described from Ireland, so that's kind of what set... This whole species up was specimens from Ireland, and so as a result, they just were automatically associated with Ireland from the very, very beginning of um, our understanding of them.
0: And where else can you find them? You find them all across Europe, and
1: they actually probably went extinct here a bit sooner than they went in other parts of Europe. So here, I think the oldest ones would be about eleven thousand, maybe ten thousand years old. Whereas if you go into other parts of Europe, you'll find them from about seven and a half thousand years ago. Why did they become extinct then? a combination of factors most likely so changing climate will be the major one as you get the kind of ice ages and the interglacials so the periods with ice and the periods which were much warmer coming and going over Europe uh, you get changing conditions different vegetation different competition from other animals and also different predators including humans so all of these things coming together with a changing environment and changing pressures from different predators will have affected the population but competition with other species would have been a massive factor as well
0: so there's no one main reason no
1: no well, not that you can just put your finger on and say oh it was this and actually that's usually the case for most things so when we today talk about things going extinct because of climate change the climate change is one aspect but actually It will be the climate change plus human intervention, changing farming practices, um, invasive species. There'll be a whole raft of different things which all come together, but there might be one thing beyond all of the others which is causing more pressure. And that will be the thing which is usually identified as the causing factor. But actually, usually it's a whole bunch of different environmental pressures which are causing the problem.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Terry. I'm Paola Viscardi. Details on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney.